Welcome to Season 1 of Fitzroy Basin Association's exclusive podcast series, The Ripple Effect. Fitzroy Basin Association, or FBA, is Central Queensland's leading natural resource management group. We protect the region's special places and unique species, promote sustainable industries through best management practices and reduce the impacts our region has on the Great Barrier Reef. From in June in the south to Nebo in the north, FBA covers an area twice the size of Tasmania, with more than 3,700 agricultural businesses and 2.6 million head of cattle. Our podcast, The Ripple Effect, tells the basin stories of achieving a sustainable future. Listen as we explain how we are connected and how your actions affect others. One of FBA's ongoing projects centres around pest management. No pest animal in Australia has ever been eradicated. It's a seriously detrimental environmental issue. Queensland has a multitude of pest species, from the cane toad to feral pigs, cats, dogs and foxes. An animal requires three key elements to become a pest. A lack of natural predators, ideal breeding conditions and a surplus of available food. No two species can be controlled in exactly the same way. Proof of that is a really special cocker spaniel named Rocky who has become the unlikely ally of turtle hatchlings in our region. This detection canine is the best buddy of a bloke called Tom Garrett. Tom's the Weeds and Pests Technical Officer at the Queensland Murray-Darling Committee based in Roma, who's in Rockhampton with Rocky to help the FBI detect foxes in the region. So how effective has Rocky been? Tom is speaking with FBI's Communication Coordinator, Ebony. All indications so far, Rocky's, this is his fourth year of detection work on foxes on the east coast here, and we've worked so far from Yapoon, now all the way down to the Gold Coast, Stradbroke Island, both North and South Stradbroke. We've worked for three years with National Parks and Wildlife and Burnett Mary Regional Group on a nest to ocean project that they've worked together on around the Monrepo and Bundaberg area. And I believe for three years now, the predation by foxes on turtle hatchlings and nests on Monrepo Beach is zero. The first time in 50 years that they've had a turtle season with no predation from foxes and that's I think generally considered because of the work the dogs have done with the detecting of the dens and the natal dens and then following up with fumigation and trapping afterwards. So obviously Rocky is a huge resource. What kind of investment does it take to train a dog like that? Rocky is a product of um, training by Steve Austin uh, a gentleman who's a, a dog trainer down in New South Wales and he is most noted in Australia for his work with the detection dogs that they used on Macquarie Island to make it rabbit and rat free. Steve trains the dogs, he selects them for their ability to have a good nose obviously and he basically chooses for this type of work gun dogs. So. Anyone that knows what a gun dog is, it's a group three dog and they're a soft-mouthed dog, generally pointers and retrievers. So Rocky's an English Springer Spaniel and Steve tells us that that particular line, the one that Rocky comes from, has been bred for about 300 years now, specifically because of the good work they do in, in the field as a retriever and a scent dog. This is a, 
a new experience for us, working on freshwater turtles. So I suppose the biggest issue here is not so much that we're working in a June area, but we're working probably in a swampy area. And the biggest danger for both myself and Rocky are the fact that there's saltwater crocodiles in some of the estuaries and the rivers here. So I'm hoping that we don't come across any of those. <laughs> I think it's also because you've had a fairly good start, like most of the East Coast, to um, the summer growing period. We're going to have very thick vegetation and that tends to slow the dog's ability to scent down a little bit as well. They still find the dens, but uh, the biggest problem is you need to have control of the dog. The dog has to have confidence that you're going to be there when they do find the den. So it's hard to keep up with the dog, who's much more adept at getting through thick grass and high grass and under trees. So um, I'm expecting to have a machete with me and hopefully be able to keep up with him or keep him with me. But luckily enough, foxes like to go and return to the same denning sites over and over because they're just like us, I suppose. The most expensive real estate is the one that's near food, near water, and has good structure around it. One of the benefits of the dogs is that once you've found those dens, rather than destroy the dens, like you do with a rabbit warren, where you destroy that warren, collapse it so the rabbits don't breed, you treat these dens that the dogs find, the fox dens, you treat them with carbon monoxide or a bait or a trap. Don't destroy the dens so that once you've cleared that population of foxes out, if you do get reinfestation, then they're going to go to those good dens. So it's quite easy to keep managing and keep a lid on the fox population. So from a private perspective, what can landholders do to manage a fox problem if they have one? Well, I think generally the same as a wild dog problem and, and I know like all beef areas and, and livestock areas and, and Fitzroy is one of those a good baiting program combined with a trapping program uh, so all those tools are in the toolbox for wild dogs can be used on foxes as well I think wild dogs tend to return to the same areas to den because of all the reasons I've just mentioned with foxes but certainly landholders can help by observing movements of the animals and anyone that has country that borders the estuaries and the river and the smaller creeks where your turtles are breeding, if they see a lot of fox movement from July onwards, then, yeah, a phone call to let someone know and um, get out there with some traps or, or some baits or talk to someone from perhaps National Parks and Wildlife or, or DNR who can use those fumigant cartridges. And, um, yeah, it's fairly easy if someone does find a den to treat it. Across the bay lives a community of like-minded, proactive landholders going the extra mile to control feral pigs. They're not only battling to keep pigs off their pasture, they're helping to keep wild pigs away from internationally significant wetlands, inland of Corio and Shoalwater Bays. A world taken over by feral pigs is a desolate, barren and unappealing place. I don't think you need to tell anybody that. To avoid that occurring on the Stanage Peninsula, is an FBA-led initiative to control feral pig numbers. Senior Project Officer at FBA, Shannon Van Noonan, explains the project. The Stenage Feral Pig Management Project's been going for quite a few years. Uh, it's really been through three separate programs, uh, but it's been continued for that long because of the great outcomes we've been getting so far. 
what it's involved really is working with the landholders who originally concerned about the amount of pigs they were seeing on their properties and the associated damage that they were doing. Um, then coming to us and asking if there was a way for us to apply for funding to support them to trial different control techniques. And we were successful. And over the years, we've been able to refine our management techniques to um, the most effective ones. Effectively, we've reduced the population by over 70%, which is a critical amount. It means that we've really made a dent in the population where it can't just bounce back the following season. And the benefits to the wetlands that they were doing damage to is obvious, where there's species of grass and wetland reeds that landholders hadn't even seen before are coming back. And so it's been that really good, large-scale, multiple landholders involved, coordinated type of project. So what kind of impact do pigs have on any environment? And then what kind of impact do they have on wetland environments? Well, any environment, I suppose they are potentially transporting disease, which can impact livestock, therefore business and people's livelihoods. Particularly when it comes to wetlands, feral pigs wallow a lot and dig to find tubers, which are often the type of plants that are in those wetlands. So in trying to get to the tubers, they uplift the soil and turn it over to get to them, which physically changes the morphology and the function of those wetlands. So they're no longer representative of what should be there. And therefore, the, all the animals and organisms that rely on those wetlands are also now displaced or in distress. And one of those, in fact, is the critically endangered Capricorn yellow chat. It's a type of small bird that relies on healthy marine plain wetlands, which these feral pigs have been doing a lot of damage to. So can you um, illustrate for me where Saanich Bay is geographically? Yeah, so Saanich Bay, uh, the Torilla plain wetland system is on the way towards Saanich Bay, the town. And it's 120 kilometres north-northwest of Rockhampton. And it's an enormous wetland complex. So there's different types of wetlands but they share a common geographical area. They are listed under the Directory of Important Wetlands Australia, means that they are recognised as an internationally significant wetland but there's also within the broad area, uh, Torilla wetlands have been identified as a nationally significant wetland. So yeah, they, they are really important wetlands to look after. How would you describe these landholders and what they're doing? It's been really good to see a community feel to a project with multiple landholders. They obviously care very much about the area that they manage directly, but they have shared the costs involved in this control effort as a community and benefited from it as well. So there's a couple of drivers within the group that are really active, involved in different committees, uh, environmental advisory committees, as well as giving feedback to local councils and updating them on, on this project, which shows that they have a sense of pride about it as well, and they should. And then there are those who are a bit more passive, which the drivers talk to and coordinate when the heli shoot's going to happen. But nevertheless, they're still involved and they're still putting their money towards it and uh, making sure that their cattle aren't going to be in an area that's going to be heavily affected by our control efforts. So they're all individuals, but they do come together. And that's why we've had such a great outcome in this project. What can landholders do if they have a wild pig problem? Well, that's a big question because it depends is the first response. It depends on where you are. So if you live near a town, you are unlikely to be able to use baits. 
But if you're away from urban areas and you have a large property, you, you have multiple options to use, which could be baiting, which could be trapping, which could be shooting uh, from either the land or heli shooting. There's devices that are specifically designed for feral pigs, such as hog hoppers, and even baits that are specifically designed for feral pigs too. So really it's a case of, depending on where you are, I always recommend people talk to their local councils because they'll have pest officers who can provide a great insight and experience into this type of work. I would add, though, what this project's shown FBA is that when you get a group of landholders together is where you get some really big outcomes. It's because we've been able to take a holistic approach to the Tarilla wetland system, it's been the difference to showing the landholders also have seen that there's just nowhere near the numbers coming in onto the plane and the repopulation rate just isn't really there. So as long as they maintain that, they're going to continue to see that benefit. So, yeah, big lesson for FBA is where you get a group of landholders coordinating efforts together, uh, that's when you get the best outcomes. And if you're lucky enough to avoid feral pigs and feral foxes in your day-to-day life, Chances are, if you live in Queensland, you've had to deal with a cane toad or two, or three, or four. The presence of cane toads is fairly offensive, but as environmental scientist and frog specialist Beth Lee Bell explains, it's what they're keeping away that's the real problem. Cane toads are actually toxic at all stages of their life cycle, and they also eat a lot more than the average native frog, so they do have a fairly big impact. Um, from what I've noticed and from the research that I've read. One thing they do is reduce habitat and food options for native frogs, especially if those frogs are trying to live from the same water body and they can significantly affect the growth and development of those frog tadpoles because they're actually eating a lot more than them. They also kill many reptiles and birds and fish when they attempt to eat them and some of the more famous species that have been really threatened to extinction are the quolls and some of the frog-eating snakes, lizards, goannas, and to some extent freshwater crocodiles. Also, another impact that um, I learnt about fairly recently that would be happening in central Queensland is on grazing properties, dung beetles are being used to reduce buffalo fly because the dung beetles go in the dung where the buffalo fly larvae are and eat that or disturb it. And the cane toads actually eat lots of dung beetles. So they're breaking that really effective cycle of dung beetles protecting cattle from buffalo fly, which can be a major issue on grazing properties, which there are a lot of in central Queensland. Cane toads, as with all amphibians, um, need to be near moisture to survive. And although Australia is a very dry continent, generally speaking, we do have lots of helpful cane toads um, by farms having farm dams. We've got creeks and other large water bodies. And the toads are really clever and they choose those more permanent water bodies to live in and around. So, yeah, that's one reason that they're really taking over Australia. And they breed in these more permanent water bodies in great numbers during the summer season, up to 35,000 eggs at a time, which is compared to a normal frog, they're usually only, you know, 100 to several hundred at most. Um, So that's a great difference. If there were no controls of toads, they could make life very unpleasant. I've actually heard of um, old timers say there used to be a lot more toads around 
But I think over the years, man has reduced their number and also the bigger, the stronger and the better swimmers have been colonising new parts of Australia. So a couple of things that have helped keep the numbers in check are that there are now some native Australian animals that can successfully eat toads. So we've got keelback snakes and I've seen lots of dams with lots of keelback snakes around them. So they eat the tadpoles and they can also eat adult toads up to a certain size without any harm to them. Lots of birds can flip over toads and eat their stomach and apparently water rats can also chew their legs off. So without all those controls and without humans doing anything, toads would just be all over your back lawn, under all the street lights. They would just be everywhere like they were previously. I do notice if you keep going back to an area that the numbers do go down and also the size of the toads reduces. Okay. And I've had other people tell me similar things. And you talk to old timers around CQ about toads and they say, oh, yeah, they used to be the size of a dinner plate. Well, I've never seen one that size. So, yeah, they're definitely getting smaller and fewer. And if you keep going back to a place and removing the eggs, the tadpoles and the adults, it can make a huge difference to frogs. Frogs will come back and recolonise the site. To the people, the general public who hate toads, uh, don't want to go near them, what would you say to them to kind of get them involved with like a cane toad challenge night? They don't have to touch one. If they want to come along, they can just be the person that's holding the bucket or the bag or the torch. They don't actually have to touch them. That's understandable. I mean, they, they are poisonous and they're pretty warty and some may say ugly. <laughs> it's not something you really want to touch, but a lot of people don't even like touching frogs. So I can understand that. But yeah, there are certainly ways you can be involved without physically touching them. The other things you can do are protecting frog habitats on your place, in your backyard. Even if you don't have a pond, just have somewhere nice and moist, you know, some mulch and messy grass and a few sticks and logs for frogs to hide in. Um, that can help the native population as well. If you're looking for any extra information on these species or upcoming workshops where FBA can offer guidance on their management, head to our website, fba.org.au, for more information or for a detailed event calendar. Thanks for tuning in to the first episode of The Ripple Effect. Next week, we'll be sitting down with a number of exciting and innovative projects tackling the issue of litter. FBA, making change happen.